Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, but I guess you probably already knew that. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lionsledbydonkeys. Just $5 per month gets you every regular episode early, access to our community Discord, a digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, as well as its audiobook, read by me, and over five years of bonus content. By supporting the show, you support us and allow us to keep our show as it has always been ad-free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me still in the literal content factory, since today's episode is going to be about a labor union, is Tom. Spilled coffee on my shirt today, Joe. <laughs> How could you possibly survive? Well, it wasn't a great start to the day. You know, last night I was uh, I was just chilling out. I was playing Starfield, and an exceptionally I was also doing that an exceptionally mid game that I am probably going to play play about two hundred hours of. I'm having fun so far. Um, I will say I do not like the the space dog fighting. Yeah, um, but I kind of knew that going in, and it's going to sound weird as someone who right sci-fi i'm really not interested in that part of sci-fi mm-hmm. i don't know why it just doesn't appeal to me i mean and specifically in the video game i swear to, i don't get motion sickness but that shit fucks me up you specifically just pre- in starfield you just prefer the uh the ground-based sci-fi misery yeah just kill me in orbit if i have to go from point a to point b <laughs> with like, the tungsten rod yeah hit me with the rods from god you know uh and i before we get started i do have to say after our conversation about anime weebs in the gym during our last episode, I am convinced that somehow we birthed something into my current existence. No. Because I was uh, going into the metro station uh, last night and a group of youths ran by doing the Naruto run directly onto a train. And I was just like, God damn it. We had something to do with it. We willed this into existence because I've never seen anything like that before here. It's the lathe of heaven. <laughs> You know, but it's it's the it's the pregnant woman uh, fallacy or not fallacy. I can't remember the correct term for it, but it's like uh, it's like when a woman becomes pregnant, she starts noticing so many more pregnant women around her. It's like you know, if you break your leg, you only really notice how many people are like walking with a limp once you break your leg. Yeah, so we're dealing with the, the pregnant Naruto conspiracy. Yeah, it's like it's once again we bring it back to our previous episode. It's once you notice people who have train rash on their chest, they like you know. Once you see people who look like Liver King, you see them everywhere. I know when I when the perfect picture of health is uh, looking like you got too too close to Chernobyl and you're just that red all the time. <laughs> um, now speaking of nothing, we've just been talking about. How do you feel about the Pinkertons? Fuck them. Thank you. Uh, for. For maybe our listeners who aren't familiar with the Pinkertons, I don't think we've actually ever talked about them before. Uh, it's been five years, and I've had a lot of concussions, so I don't really remember all of the episodes that we've done. Early onset uh, dementia is coming for the two of us. That That is my retirement plan, as I will forget of my own existence. <laughs> um, but if you've played Red Dead Redemption 2, uh, they're the enemies in that game, so just keep that in mind. Um, now today we're going to talk about the time a bunch of striking steelworkers in Homestead, Pennsylvania, got into a pitched naval battle with the fucking Pinkertons. Fuck yeah, unions versus Pinkertons, and it's funny because it's still you know present because 
People like Amazon and other big companies are using the Pinkertons to try and break strikes still. Recently, Magic the Gathering's uh, owners, Wizards of the Coast, deployed Pinkertons to go to a man's house and take back magic cards. They they still exist. What is with Wizards of the Coast and Games Workshop just like having the worst ideas of how to, you know, grow their community? Wizards of the Coast are sending, you know, the FBI Black Lotus Squad to shoot your dog. And like Games Workshop are just sending like the Emperor's Wrath to kick you in the nuts straight into space. If you even dare upload a fan a fan movie you have made of 40k. Yeah, like, Wizards of the Coast is, like, I don't really consume any media from Games Workshop anymore. Not that I've ever played uh, Warhammer, like, the tabletop. I've read, of course, I've read the Gaunt's Ghost series, which, beyond being the best piece of Warhammer media, in my opinion, it's, like, a very good military science fiction series, uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, But Wizards of the Coast, I'm much more familiar with being absolute bastards, I mean, they. If you look back at some of the designs and cards that they've had, you can kind of like they literally had a card called Race War once. Oh, this is exactly what I expect from Magic: The Gathering fans and the people who make it. I mean, I still, if if I'm really bored, I might fire up Magic: The Gathering Arena, but not really anymore. Yeah, like at least you know, like Magic: The Gathering fans are like doxing each other. At least, like, Warhammer fans, well, the non-racist fascist ones are just, like, playing out their own Slanesh punishment fantasies on Discord servers. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, so I need to correct myself. The card was not called Race War. There was one called Invoke Prejudice, Jihad, Crusade, one that used a slur for travelers. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Invoke Prejudice. And the online database for... Oh, and the Invoke Prejudice card looked like it had a member of the KKK on it. Invoke Prejudice Uh, is just what I play whenever I have to deal with customer customer support in Britain. It's just like, (laughs) I do not want to talk to English people right now. Please give me a really nice Indian person who is like... Who will solve my problem in like 90 seconds versus like an English person from Hull who's going to send me, you know, on 15 different side quests to unlock the like content filter on my phone. I should also point out that the official online database of Magic the Gathering's cards, like the database they put all their cards on that you can look at, ended with the URL of 1488. (laughs) Uh... I'm laughing because this is fucking ridiculous. I'm learning this along with everybody else. Um, The Invoke Prejudice card looked like a member of the KKK holding a battle axe. Um, su- surprisingly, however, it's a blue card, not a white card. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- this is the company that uh, employed the uh, the Pinkertons like th- four months ago. Like I, uh, I, I've never played Magic. I just know that there is like a very popular perception of people who play Magic are very smelly. In the same way that people who play that wa- perception is true. And, and like as someone who frequented Magic the Gathering tournaments when I was much younger and know people who still do, it is not uncommon for Magic the Gathering tournaments to put, like, email people who buy tickets to go to them to remind them to wash themselves beforehand. It's like going to Smash tournaments. Yeah, I mean, it's like going to sci-fi conventions, which I have been to as an author and a fan. 
Um, yeah, it's like w- w- in terms of like the ranking of who is the worst smelling fan base. Is it you know Warhammer fans? Magic the Gathering by far. I w- I would argue it's probably Smash players, but like it's like Smash I, players. That, that area is foreign to me. I actually don't know. So if if you're if you're a competitive Smash fleet, Smash fleet. Uh, or play Warhammer 40k right into the show. Tell us how smelly your areas are. <laughs> going to rebrand fucking a lot to being a Smash lead. <laughs> smash lead. I really hope I'm not the first person to do it because it's very stupid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Pinkertons. Yeah, yeah the Pinkertons. Uh, they, they were recently employed by Wizards of the Coast to fucking raid a guy's house who had from my understanding, completely legal magic to gather. Like he had, they had mailed him or mistakenly mailed him or something cards that weren't released yet. And they sent the fucking Pinkertons to his house. And I should remind people the Pinkertons are mostly known for machine gunning unarmed civilians during the 1800s. <laughs> Arthur Morgan just shows up the door. Like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. I got a card. <laughs> what? You trying to take my black Lotus. Now, before we get to the point of the Pinkertons invading a small town of Pennsylvania via a river, we have to talk about how we got to this point. And, of course, that brings us to one Andrew Carnegie. Um, now, we could just say Andrew Carnegie happened and then move on, but it can't quite be that simple. And, like, I'm, I know the Carnegies are ve- were very, very wealthy and of the joke is like, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. <laughs> now, like, Carnegie... Carnegie has is I think the first American example of like reputation laundering because nowadays he's mostly you know donating a ton of money to arts, music, even labor movements. Um, but you should also know that that came with one hell of a fucking body count and a man desperately not trying to go to hell as he died. Um, so for a large, I would say. He was. He should fairly be remembered as a fucking asshole. So he's play. He played the Jeff Bezos, you know, gambit. Yeah, I mean, he's he's Arthur, He's like the Sackler family before the Sackler family. You know, uh, like the Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Universities, Carnegie Colleges are everywhere. So people like remi- remind or remember him as this rich man who gave up so much of his wealth. Um, so like for these institutions, when he was a cutthroat fucking oligarch during the gilded age yes. he was quite literally the richest man in the world at some point yeah so he now he's spending eternity being dick punched by Be- beelzebub one can only hope <laughs> now by the 1880s carnegie steel was by far one of the largest companies in the united states and pretty much owned a blank check on the american economy they pretty much made every kind of steel anyone would use, but specifically the U.S. Navy, who used their steel, and only their steel, for armored plating and structural beams. And they were worried they might sell it to someone else, made a massive amounts of money on wildly inflated government military contracts, which is thankfully no longer a thing that happens in the United States at all. Of course, as this happened, Factories expanded and more workers were brought in chasing those sick factory paychecks, which were good, only to see their wages plummet as Carnegie made record profits. The factory workers were union men, being members of the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, shortened to AA. Not that AA. Though, 
they probably would be members of that AA as well, being you know factory workers in the 1800s. They drank at levels not uh, no longer known by human beings. When you have guessed it, this was not an easy process, and this resulted in strikes and street fights in the early 1880s. The AA negotiated contracts for workers nationwide, and in 1881, Carnegie attempted to force workers to sign what was known as a yellow dog contract. This meant it was effectively a union contract, locking them into their current benefits, but part of the agreement was they could not be a part of that labor union. Oh, fuck off. Once again, right. time is a flat circle. Some things never change. Yep. This failed, and soon the AA was allowed to start unionizing workers in the Homestead, Pennsylvania plant of Carnegie Steel. That did not mean, however, Carnegie and his factory manager, arguably a man even more evil than Carnegie himself, Henry Frick, were going to take that lying down. Carnegie believed that unions themselves hindered efficiency and called them, quote, an elitist, discriminatory organization not worthy of the American Republic. Now, I should point out, part of that is actually true. Unions at this point were racist as fuck. I will say that outright. I mean, like, to be fair... But they were as racist as the American public. Yeah, I was about to say, everyone was racist at this time. Yeah, I'm not arguing that. uh, Because, you know, if I don't point out that they were truly deeply discriminatory, uh, I would be remiss. Though, they were not any more racist than anyone else, and much less racist than Andrew Carnegie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's a yardstick that's a mile long. Yeah, and not to mention, literally the richest man in the entire world calling a steel union elitist is quite hilarious. Once again, some things never change. I mean, okay, caveat on that. Carnegie was not the richest man in the world yet. That was still John Rockefeller, Mm. though Carnegie would surpass him in like 11 years in 1901. So he's close. Yeah, J.D. Rockefeller's getting slobbed on in some tower in New York and Carnegie's there trying to fight with steel workers. Literally having eyes wide shut parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, but like, like this thing of like, oh, sh- like workers fighting for their rights being cast as elitist is like, it's just a divide and conquer tactic. That is like, of course it is. Yeah. It's, you still see it like, like dickheads like Tucker Carlson saying like teachers fighting for, you know, better pay. Or once again, don't get me fucking, I was a union teacher, and the fact that, like, people think teachers' unions are these overpaid, elitist power grabbers is fucking hilarious, because the first thing that happens every time a state shits its own budget out of its ass is teachers lose their jobs, like me, not cops, not fucking government workers, teachers, every fucking time. Instead, after I got laid off losing all of my benefits... The cops in Honolulu, where I worked, all got a 12% raise well, from you, COVID money. Do you know what? Listen, if maybe we funded the education system more, like, we would need less cops because none of them are f- able to fucking read, so it takes 15 of them to fill out paperwork. Like, But, like, it, it is the thing of, like, it's to divide other working class people against each other. Like, like even now, there are coal workers in Appalachia, like, fighting for insurance payouts for Black Lung that happened in the past five years. If you want to hear more about it, shout out to Kim Kelly. Look up Fight Like Hell. You can read all about it there. Yeah, Yeah, I highly recommend it. Now, Frick was Carnegie's second in command, and there might be some people, maybe our fans of the Well, There's Your Problem podcast or other people interested in 
weird bits of American history, Henry Frick's name might sound familiar to you. This is because he'd go on to be partially responsible for the catastrophic Johnstown flood because his country club had built a shitty dam to block off a river so they could have their own personal lake. The flood killed 2,000 people. I am... Early. It's just cartoonishly a fucking country club killed 2,000 people because they wanted their own yachting lake. We should these people both then and still now. Unfortunately, that... Uh, beep! <laughs> yes, I I am turning into Ted Kaczynski. The, the, leftist kind, the leftist kind of Ted Kaczynski, not the race war Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that part about him. Yeah, Rest in piss. Pl- please, if let's actually talk about the Unabomber for a second. So, do we ha- do we have to? Yes, we do. <laughs> so, if you were a leftist and you're saying like, "Oh, Ted Kaczynski was so right," literally read anything more than the first seven pages of his manifesto. Or nobody's done that other than his brother, who turned him into the FBI. Yeah, like listen, imagine writing shit so bad that your own brother turns you into the cops, like. Imagine writing in such a psychotic way that your brother knew who you were based on your manifesto. Yeah, there is this thing called eco-fascism. Maybe look it up. Yeah, he was definitely an eco-fascist. He, he really hated himself some black and Jewish folks. And women. He really hated women as well. Yeah. Turns out, turns out the guy who constructs bombs in his weird fucking log cabin in the middle of nowhere. Not a good guy. Yeah. Not a good guy. Yeah, I am the I know. Hot I, takes all around today. I am the Ted Kaczynski of podcasting because I am recording this in a remote shack in the middle of nowhere. That means I'm gonna be uniquely suspicious of anything you mail me from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't use those elf bars I'm bringing to you in October. Now Carnegie put Frick in charge of strangling the AA out of existence. The perfect time for this came in 1892 because the AA's labor contract was expiring and they had no intention of signing another one with the union if they could fucking help it. So Carnegie ordered Frick to have the factory pump out as much armor plating for the Navy as they possibly could before the contract expired. And if the union refused to back down to Frick's demands, which were 22% wage cuts and was effectively a right-to-work deal that would all but kill the union, he was then to shut the factory down for as long as it was needed until the workers left the union and came back to work. This isn't the first time either of them had done this, and all of the other occasions, it worked. It turned out, however, the workers of Homestead were not going to put up with this shit one bit. Instead of backing down, the workers started hanging frickin' effigy in the middle of the factory and setting him on fire. That That's what I do at home with uh, my effigy of Joe. It's just like... That's fair enough. It's fire resistant, so I can set it on fire, so I don't have to keep making one like every time I set it on fire. It's you and the effigy that smells like burnt hair all the time. Yeah, like, this is the problem with the effigy industry, you know? It is like a... It's not a renewable product. They're not very green because, you know, like you burn the effigy, you have to make a new one every time. This is why I'm bringing eco effigy to your door. If you want to buy effigies of your boss or people you hate and burn them in the comfort of your own home and have it in a reusable, sustainable manner, look up ecoeffigy.com. 
And I'm unionizing the eco-effigy uh, workers. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Tom is building a pleasure yacht lake near my apartment. <laughs> I'm ma- I'm mailing you envelopes full of, of cyanide. <laughs> During the negotiations, the AA had backed down on pretty much all of its points. They had agreed to a wage wage slash. They agreed to a vacation slash, which this is the 1890s. Vacation was you get a lunch break. Um, Now, the one thing they wouldn't do is agree to the right to work. It was effectively a right to work contract that said you got all of the same benefits for the union, uh, uh, from the union, if you were not a member of the union and you did not have to pay union dues out of your paycheck, it would have killed the AA. So that was the only thing that the AA did not agree to. And since he had their back against the wall, agreeing to all these cuts left and right, Frick was now straight up demanding the dissolution of the AA within the Homestead plant, which is kind of wild here. Okay. The AA had not unionized the entire factory. In fact, a massive minority of the workers in the factory were members of the union. Only 800 out of 3,800 workers were union men. Isn't a massive minority kind of an oxymoron? I mean, it's a minority of a minority, I guess. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) With their contract expiring on June 30th, 1892, Frick decided five days before that he would no longer negotiate with the union. Workers were then locked out of the armor plate mill and one of the other steel furnaces, with the rest of the plant being locked down the next day. He also built a three-mile-long fence, which was 12 miles high around the factory, and topped it with barbed wire before adding peepholes for rifles. He... After that, he built sniper towers next to each mill and installed a high-pressure water hose that had been modified to spray boiling hot furnace liquid. First of all, ow. Um, second of all, like, how quickly can you build a three-mile fence? I mean, if you use scabs, probably pretty fast. Yeah, fuck scabs. Like, fuck, fuck scabs in every industry. You podcast scabs when the strike is coming. I, I see you. Um, yeah, like... Sniper towers, like imagine being hit with one of those hoses, though. Jesus. Yeah, uh, they the workers nicknamed it Fort Frick. <laughs> this just makes me think of that. Uh, that you know that tweet about like Star Wars fans is like, oh my god, it's Glorp Shido. <laughs> <laughs> so Glorp Shido is building a f- three mile fence. Yeah. Now, folks, this is what we call foreshadowing. Now. Now locked out of the entire steel mill, Frick had seriously fucked up. Remember, only that fraction of the workers were union men, but a full 3,000 of the workers, all but 800, met up at a nearby tavern and decided to go on strike. He had pissed off the workers so much, the non-union guys were like, yeah, fuck them. Now the workers knew what was coming next. A tried-and-true tactic to break the back of many a strikes. And, you know, back then and today. Frick planned to completely ignore the strike, reopen the plant, and staff it entirely with scabs. Now, for people who are unaware, scab is a nickname given to a strike breaker. They're a non-union worker brought in by bosses to cross picket lines and take the jobs of those on strike, normally for less pay and no benefits. The workers were just not going to let that happen. They would not let the scabs in the factory. So Frick, right. re- <laughs> so Frick reached out to the local sheriff, a guy named William McCleary, and asked him to intervene and open a path for the scabs to make it into the plant. 
the sheriffs and a couple deputies, like maybe 20 guys, marched into town and nailed up posters ordering the strikers to stop intervening with the plant's operation and allowed the scabs to go inside. The workers showed up, tore the posters down, and told the cops to get the fuck out of town because they're not welcome there anymore. Hell yeah! They forced the cops to walk down to the river's edge, loaded them up on a boat, and kicked their asses down river towards Pittsburgh. <laughs> I just love it this time. He was like, get in the boat, or I'm gonna fucking blow your brains out, you're going to Pittsburgh. Because, <laughs> like, remember, this is an area you could go by or, like, a repeating rifle at the hardware store. Like, everybody is armed to the teeth. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, some things, once again, never change. But, like... Uh, let's take a moment to talk about scabs, picket lines, and strike breaking. Everyone, uh, this is this is Tom's labor history corner. Um, so recently, uh, as in like early this year and last year, there was a series of RMT strikes. That is the rail union for the UK. Um, I experienced those when I was in the UK, actually. Yeah. So there's also an ambulance strike, which, as a former ambulance worker, I am. A- a massive fan of because it is illegal for us to strike in the United States. Yeah. So the function of those of a withdrawal of service or a complete shutdown strike is in order to because services like public transport, if they shut off, that equals companies lose money. The government cares about companies making money. Money makes everything go around. And those are ne- not necessarily like pickets and st- uh, strikes that you can cross the picket line because you can use other alternative public services that aren't on strike but if it is in the case of a service or a business that has striking workers don't cross the picket line i don't care if you can only eat cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast lunch and dinner you can go without it you can eat carrots it's it it's uh we'd like to apologize for that to that particular person for dying horrifically of scurvy at some point of their life. Yeah, like I, I saw it a lot with the Star- Oh, we all saw that bullshit, yeah. But like the Starbucks unionization strike, um with Amazon, with like a lot of other kind of services. We're seeing it with the WGA and SAG after after right now, um striking uh media properties, essentially and like I saw a lot of people with the Starbucks thing because I used to work in a coffee shop, so I understand. And like their situation is a lot worse than mine because they're simply by being in the US. And it's like, do you know what? Go to an independent coffee shop or better yet, make your own coffee for a couple of weeks. You know, these people are fighting for their living. You're just arguing for your daily coffee. It, it is and especially in the United States. There's benefits And I say this as someone who no longer lives there, but was a member of several unions when I I did live in the United States. Many of the benefits that people enjoy who are not union in the US, weekends off, holidays off, overtime pay, those are all the the, the product of union people literally fighting and dying for it. So show some fucking respect. Yep. Like people fought for your rights to uh, go get drunk on a Saturday. And it is That's your fucking right. It's your obligation to one go do it and two respect them, respect the history, respect people who are fighting for the workers' rights of the future. Because right now they're trying to take all those rights back from you. Yeah. Yep. I grew up in I grew up in a proudly United Auto Workers home uh, uh, household and family, so I was raised uh, to be supportive of unions. Yeah. You're from Michigan, you know, of course, yeah. like fucking right. It's the one good thing our state ever did. And then it was 
you know, melted away slowly, you know, death by a thousand cuts between bad governance, uh, shitty leadership in the auto industry, and right-to-work laws, which thankfully either are being repealed or already have been repealed in Michigan. Like, it's the only reason why my family can even survive now is union pensions. And if you cross a picket line or your scab, fuck you, we don't want your money. Die in a puddle. Leave that part out. (laughs) (laughs) If you know, you know. Now, um, so yeah, the cops get kicked down the river to fucking Pittsburgh, uh, which rules. And at this point, it's important to point out that the mayor of Homestead himself is a union man, as are like, you know, there's union families. And then not to mention these scabs coming in, Carnegie, Frick, they're all outsiders to these town to this town. So the people who are not union have nothing to do with the union are now all supporting the strike. Thousands upon thousands of people are like, yeah, fuck Carnegie, fuck this factory. These guys all live here. And not and, and not to mention like the practicality of it, their wages get slashed. It directly impacts the economy of Homestead. Um, so to the workers, if Frick was going to close the plant, which he did, the workers were going to make goddamn sure it stayed that way and closed for everyone. <laughs> and this is where they form a militia. <laughs> Hell yeah. Picket lines march back and forth in front of the plant and other workers organize themselves into paramilitary units patrolling the nearby ferries, rail lines, and towns looking for any incoming scabs or cops or outsiders and chasing them off at gunpoint should they appear. (laughs) Are you a member of the provisional WGA or the continuity (laughs) WGA? Then they secured a fucking strike navy. This included a steam-powered river launch and several rowboats, which were manned around the clock. And if any of the workers' patrols, staffed by men who were born and raised in the area, came across any strangers who had no good reason to be there, they were escorted to the edge of town and politely invited to fuck off or get their ass kicked. I suppose that kind of makes sense, though, because that's how they're transporting all this steel, as it's brought to the river and then loaded up and then shipped off. Yeah, it's a lifeline to the factory. So yeah. they they did a blockade. Because <laughs> <laughs> like the like I suppose these factories are probably running on like a mixture of like hydroelectric and like coal. Uh, probably mostly coal for the blast furnaces, but yeah. they use the ri- they use the river for transport, cooling, any kind of water yeah. they need for the factory. They absolutely need the river to be open. Fair, fair. Okay, okay. They were incredibly thorough in their organization to the point they made sure to secure the local telegraph stations where they could remain in contact with other members of the AA outside of town. They also had spies intercept company telegrams so they could monitor the company's attempts to hire more scabs from abroad and their movements through the rail lines in the river. They <laughs> invented a strike intelligence network on yes. the fly. It's fucking steel worker signal intel. Shit rules. They have better intel and recon than many of the actual invasion forces we have covered on the show. Once again, time is a flat circle. Union (laughs) organizers are communicating via telegram once again. Yep. Workers all but controlled the entire town and even formed a kind of shadow government, even though the real government was overwhelmingly supportive. Now, they didn't like take the town's governance order over, but they did kind of fill in the gaps. They issued their own press credentials so journalists could get into striking groups. They ran soup kitchens and pop-up housing. And knowing so many dudes who, you know, were not working, they were bored, 
breeds problems. So they put strict rules in place for local bars, forbidding them to serve any more than a few beers per day to any single man. They're like, this is going to end badly. Well, like they, they everybody's drunk and has guns. Please don't give them alcohol. Well, like they fundamentally like understand that like the biggest tensions in like doing something like that are people being hungry, people being unhoused, people being idle. So like you know, what are they going to do? Can't go to work. I might have a drink. People getting too drunk. You know, whatever. But also like external communication because if you're if you're striking and fighting against someone like Glorp Shido who has like can probably has good contacts with the press if you're you know controlling the flow of information from your side you're on a winning strategy yep yep they effectively created an armed commune overnight <laughs> yeah they, see what what was the anarchist yoke in fucking Seattle from a couple of years ago the like autonomous zone thing the uh, the, the less the less spoken of Chaz the better now, none of this slowed Frick down. He still assumed that he would have to give up at some point, probably not aware of how much support the strikers had from the town of Homestead itself, virtually the entire town of Homestead. He carpeted the nation's newspapers with ads for more scabs and kept sending them toward the town, hoping that through sheer attrition of scabs, they would eventually get into the factory, but they never did. He's using like the World War Z tactic. Is like if you pile enough of them against the wall... So the rest of them will be able to climb up the corpses. Corpse infrastructure. Yep. So, scab wall. In many cases, he put ads in new pa- newspapers as far away as Europe, luring people in with the promises of high wages, though they would be cut as soon as you showed up to work, knowing since they had traveled so far, they would almost still certainly take the job. <laughs> though Frick was starting to get pissed that his local muscle wasn't working out and his scabs still weren't making it into the plant. So Frick did what every monster industrialist did in the 1800s when confronted by workers who demanded a little bit of fucking dignity. He hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Oh. Now, we went over the Pinkertons a little bit as how it pertains to modern day, but the Pinkertons were already something of a known quantity as the arch-villain of the American Gilded Age. They were effectively a private military company meets law enforcement agency started in 1850 by Alan Pinkerton, a Scottish immigrant. Pinkerton had started his career in the U.S. with the Chicago Police Department, surprise, surprise, before starting his company and earning his reputation first by investigating train robberies before working as a spy network kind of for hire mm. for the Union Army during the U.S. Civil War. So it is 1800s Black Rock then. It's like 1800s Wagner because, like, the, <laughs> because Frontier, I wear you've got any Prigozhin. Get the finest hot dogs in Nebraska. I see. No, I, I, have I, to, I have to find Dutch Vandalin. I must return him to Medvedev. Because, like, I would call them, you know, Blackwater or any of these other companies, but like, as disgusting as Blackwater and like Dyncore and Sandline International are, they like, I'm not saying this as a like, gotta give it to them but they would hire uh, like veteran special forces guys generally like it was a high level for entry the pinkertons would hire people straight out of prison because they were only hiring them for their capacity of violence i say i say can i have your finest bowl of borscht (laughs) like there was like actual detectives who did the actual hired detective work but then they had their but again much like wagner they have their actual 
skilled professionals, many of whom are far away from the Ukraine war in Africa because they, they know that they can't use them like mm-hmm. that. But like then they have their strike breaking, which they just hire goons. Are like you look like you've killed a guy. You're hired. Yeah, goons. Yeah, yeah. The flat nosed geezers. Yeah. Now after this time, uh, after they were known as like a spy network for the union, they'd become known for being hired by any asshole with a paycheck large enough to brutalize workers, break strikes, and shoot unarmed picketers. In one case, they were hired by the Spanish government to try to suppress the Cuban Revolution in 1872, which was a slave revolt, which is kind of ironic because Alan Pinkerton is incorrectly remembered as being anti-slavery. He was very pro-slavery as long as you paid him to be. He was a fucking mercenary. Yeah, this is the thing with PMCs. You know, they'll, they'll believe whatever you paid them to believe. Yeah, exactly. Like in his personal life, he could have been an abolitionist. And a lot of his writings around the time of the U.S. of War were explicitly abolitionist. But how he makes his money, he doesn't care. So is he really an abolitionist if he's putting in a Cuban slave revolt for the fucking Spanish crown? I would argue no. Yeah. (sighs) Now, Frick hired 300 Pinkertons, all armed with Winchester repeating rifles, to go and finally open the factory. Now, these guys were not cops. Not even in the 1800s definition of the term cop, which mostly boiled down to violent Irish guy. (laughs) People on horseback catching escaped slaves. Yes. And that is the, the origin of the American policing. Most of them were bandits, cutthroats, and local tough guys, or some random people who answered a newspaper ad. They had no training and hadn't even been told exactly what it is they were going to do at the factory. They were simply told to get in a boat and leave. (laughs) They were paid the princely sum of $2.50 per day, which is the equivalent of about $85 today. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Though since the strikers were so clearly like in control of the entire town the Pinkertons would have to approach via the river that ran alongside the plant property. The hundreds of Pinkertons were loaded into river barges, which were then towed down the river by tugboats because the barges could not move on their own. The barges were completely like they were like halfway covered. They kind of had an open top, but there was walls. The workers had posted lookouts on the river and saw them coming at around 3 a.m. on July 6th, 1892. Now, it... The Pinkertons insist that the steelworkers immediately fired at them, but according to the steelworkers, because they kind of knew that this was like a Pinkerton thing, they fired warning shots into the air to tell them to fuck off. There's no evidence that they actually shot at the barges. Yet. A relay system of messengers jumped on horseback and rode into town like a fucking striking pony express to warn the people that the Pinkertons were coming. And the Pinkertons had no idea what they were floating into. At this point, not only striking workers left their home to come to the riverbed, but the entire town got out of their beds, grabbed whatever weapon they had, firearms, knives, a spear, and walked over to the river's edge to see what was going on. (laughs) Getting got in the head with a spear by Huckleberry Finn. As the barges pulled up the river, the Pinkertons were greeted by thousands of people on either side telling them to fuck off and go home if they valued their lives to not step off the barges and try to enter town. Jesus. This is getting good now. The Pinkertons, in their brilliance, ignored them 
and landed their barges near the plant and began to step off. They were greeted by a hail of rocks. Kids, adults alike, just started pelting them with stones. And nobody's exactly sure what happened next, but somebody opened fire and we don't know who. According to John McCurry, one of the tugboat captains, the workers fired first, and the Pinkertons responded when several of them were wounded. According to a New York Times investigation, the Pinkertons shot first, saying a Pinkerton man opened fire and wounded William Foy, one of the strikers. Regardless of what, uh, whatever happened, fuck them Pinkertons is what we're trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> After this, the Pinkertons retreated to the barges under a hail of gunfire. Uh, but now, the Pinkertons also returned fire with the repeating rifles, not even aiming, just pumping rounds into the crowd, killing two and wounding 12 people. The workers retreated behind a pile of scrap metal as McCurry, the tugboat captain, unhooked the Pinkerton barges from his tugboat and bailed the fuck out, leaving them <laughs> in the middle of the river. That is just pot shots now. As the Pinkertons began to cut holes in the side of their barges to create gun ports, the workers quickly began to construct scaffolding out of nearby scrap steel so they could shoot down onto the hiding Pinkertons like someone in fucking Fortnite. What? Yep. Oh, you know, gotta love union ingenuity. As the men of the town began to shoot at the Pinkertons with any weapon they had, the women gathered around to cheer the strikers, telling them, quote, Kill those goddamn Pinkertons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so cool. Now, remember, the barges cannot go anywhere. They, they're trapped in the middle of the river, and the Pinkertons are completely and totally pinned down inside the barges, unable to escape, as the workers fired on them from all sides with any weapon they had. At one point, someone broke into the town museum and found a 20-pound cannon that had been used at the Civil War only a few decades prior. <laughs> <laughs> Then they obviously they didn't have cannonballs, so they just loaded it with random bits of steel from the factory and just began to fire a homemade flechette into the barges. Now, these these guys are steelworkers, not artillerists, so they were kind of missing an awful lot. But the Pinkertons were hearing a cannon go off at this point. Yeah, Jesus, like you're stuck on a essentially a raft. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of a river surrounded by thousands of people shooting at you and you hear a cannon go off i'm jumping a out a chorus I'm, of women cheering them on to murder you i'm jumping out i'm i'm going i'm doing you know like call of duty underwater swimming to get down as far as well i'm i'm like fuck that 250 a day yeah this is not worth that two dollars fifty not to garner sympathy for the Pinkertons, because I'm not. But remember, these guys had no idea what they're going into or what they had signed up for, but they found themselves trapped into a bar just thousands of people attempted to kill them. <laughs> now, this quote comes from PBS's An American Experience. Quote, the noise they made on the shore was awful, and it made us shake in our boots, according to one Pinkerton. We were penned in like rats, and then we were fighting like desperate wild men. All of our men were under the beds and, and bunks, crying and trembling. It was a place of torment said another men were lying around wounded and bleeding and piteously begging for someone to give them a drink of water but no one dared to get a drop although there is water all around us it was a wonder that we did not go crazy or commit suicide <laughs> just just surrender like you're you're probably well, you're private we'll get to that point okay. we'll get to that point <laughs> let's just say the workers were not very empathetic to their plight <laughs> 
Yeah, I suppose. Though it's not like they had given up. The Pinkertons were returning fire, and at various points, small groups of them made for the shore, trying another landing attempt. Now, this is probably them trying to flee for their lives, but uh, the workers at this point ramped up their tactics to try to sink those goddamn barges once and for all. They loaded a boat up with oil-soaked lengths of timber, lit it on fire, and kicked it down the river towards the Pinkerton barges. Now, this burning boat inched towards the the Pinkerton barges, and they freaked out, knowing if it hit them, they were going to catch on fire and burn alive. One of the Pinkerton bosses threatened any man who tried to run with immediate execution. So, well, one guy did jump overboard, and he drowned. So, whoops. R.I.P. bitch. Yeah. Sucks to suck. Skill issue. Yeah, skill so, issue. <laughs> Learn to swim. So they remained in the barges as the boat approached, but the workers were lacking on their siege warfare knowledge since they were kind of learning on the fly and hadn't added enough oil, so the fire had burnt out and the boat ran into the side of the barge harmlessly. But <laughs> the boat was just like done. slowly getting towards it, just like bounces off slightly. Yep. But they weren't done. Workers climbed the scaffolding that they had built for rifle positions and began to throw lit sticks of dynamite down at them. <laughs> I was about to say, did they figure out some kind of MacGyvered Greek fire? Hold on to that thought. Now, either because they had shitty arms or because the barges were just a little bit too far away, uh, the, the dynamite didn't really hit the target. A lot of it just fell into the water and exploded. But one of them did land aboard one of the ships, one of the barges, and blew a chunk out of one of them and gave everybody a concussion, which is, you know, welcome to the club, buddies. Still, the workers were not done. They reloaded a rail car up with drums of oil, lit the whole fucking thing on fire, took the brakes off, and set it flying down the rails directly toward the river. They hoped it would hit the water with enough force to explode and send a curtain of burning oil flying through the air and carpet the river in oil and light the barges on fire. Though, because it's not a cartoon, the rail car just crashed into the riverbank and exploded and burned itself to the ground. Going back to the drawing board, the workers then decided to simply dump as much oil as they could find directly into the river, hoping they would saturate enough to light the whole fucking thing on fire. Oh, does it work? No, they didn't have enough oil. So they sit there trying to light it and it's not working. Uh, But with that, they quit their wily wily coyote-ass tactics and resorted back to simply shooting at them as thousands of other people heard what happened and flooded the town with more support. People as far away from Pittsburgh came into Homestead bringing rifles and dynamite with them so they could join in. (laughs) Surely, like, surely someone has a good enough arm to throw some dynamite onto the ship. Apparently not. Things had spiraled so wildly out of control that the union bosses at the AA's international branch reached out to Frick for emergency negotiations so nobody else would die as the bodies were rapidly beginning to pile up. However, Frick still didn't give a fuck. He knew if the battle continued for much longer, the state's governor, Robert Pattinson, no, not that one, would, <laughs> would, would soon send in the National Guard on his side to end the conflict. Bella, where have you been, Loka? <laughs> Though Frick kind of shit the bet on this idea, Pattinson was worried that since the strikers clearly commanded the loyalty of the entire town, that if he sent in the National Guard, he would kind of restart the U.S. Civil War in his backyard, and it would turn into an outright massacre. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the last. You don't need to send in the federales, you know? Yeah. 
instead of doing that, he told the local sheriff, it's your town. Raise your own goddamn men to handle the situation. Mind you, the workers ad hoc militia now numbered close to 5,000 people. <laughs> oh, unions rule so much. We should do we should do this again. Get that dynamite. Now, the AA president, the international president of the union showed up in town at just the time to see the Pinkertons run up a white flag trying to surrender. The workers telling them to fuck off and go to hell and then shooting at them anyway. <laughs> shooting they, the flag down. They literally did three times. <laughs> After watching this process unfold on four different occasions, the president begged the workers to allow the Pinkertons to surrender. He noted correctly that, look, guys, if we kill 300 Pinkertons, this would make the union look bad. <laughs> look, we would lose public support. Yeah, bad PR. Bad PR. <laughs> yeah. So finally, after 12 hours of battle, the workers allowed the Pinkertons to surrender, but they weren't done yet. As the Pinkertons filed off the barges under a white flag and threw their Winchester repeating rifles in a pile, thousands of men, women, and children lined the streets on either side of them and beat the shit out of them as they walked by. <laughs> they, <laughs> they formed a town-wide gauntlet for them to run. <laughs> You're, you have to walk back. As hundreds of people that are kicking you in the shins as you're trying to walk out of the town. Like men pistol whipping you, kids punching you in the dick. As they should. Quote, we were clubbed at every step, one Pinkerton recalled. Sticks, stones, and dirt were thrown us. The women pulled us down, spat in our faces and kicked us and tore our clothing off while the crowd jeered and cheered. Then the townspeople, union men and non-union men alike, stormed the barges, eluded them, and burnt them to the river's bottom. Somehow, this entire situation gets even weirder. How? Instead of, instead of marching the Pinkertons out of town, which was originally agreed upon, Hugh O'Donnell, the strike's leader, interned them in the town's opera house with the goal of using them for a POW exchange and charged them all with murder. <laughs> You're creating the fucking... Pinkerton version of John McCain. Yep. Though this didn't happen, and instead the AA president, their lawyers, and local town officials, who, remember, were loyal to the Union cause, but realized acting as a bait base for a statewide ransom was probably a bad move, loaded all the Pinkertons into a train and sent them towards Pittsburgh, where, you know, everybody sends their trash. At the end of the battle, things still got weirder. Namely, because nobody is exactly sure how many Pinkertons died. According to William Pinkerton, three men died. Two were shot, and a third killed themselves while pinned in the barges. <laughs> According to the men who survived the battle, seven died. In another report, an agent died after diving off the barge and drowning. With the battle over, O'Donnell tried to convince the governor that, hey, everything's cool in Homestead now. You got nothing to worry about. We're all back to just being strikers now. But the governor didn't believe him, seeing how he just had a town-wide uprising and sent the National Guard in to secure the town. But, of course, most importantly, the steel plant. The strikers didn't want to fight the National Guard. They had no beef with them. And instead of doing that, they did the opposite. They left the rifles at home and greeted the marching soldiers with a brass band, food, and drinks. <laughs> Hearts and minds, baby. It didn't work. Their commander, General George Snowden, no relation, I assume, a Union Civil War general and veteran of such battles as Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and Gettysburg, 
did not have time for their shit. Yeah. It's like, oh man, they had to send the hardest motherfucker in Pennsylvania over here. (laughs) (laughs) This dude is made out of nothing but wooden legs. It's like the the guy with four wooden legs from Spongebob. And all of his insides have been replaced with fucking shrapnel. He wasn't sent to keep the peace, but rather to secure Carnegie's property. He told O'Donnell, quote, I don't want any of this brass bad business while I'm here. I want you to distinctly understand that I am the master of the situation. (laughs) Martial law was immediately declared and the steel mill was taken over by the soldiers within 20 minutes. Company bosses were soon back in the mill and the combined force of 6,000 soldiers secured the town so they could bring in thousands of scabs, reopen the mill, and begin work once again within a few short weeks. Though not everything was easy for the soldiers, several strikers tried to break into the mill and stop it by restarting by throwing dynamite into the furnace. (laughs) This broke down into hand-to-hand combat where soldiers bayoneted six people. Love to see it. Love to see it. There was also a race war happening within the walls as the white scabs refused to work with the black scabs, resulting in still more bayoneting. The strike went on regardless. Whitelaw Reed, a Republican vice presidential candidate and owner of the most Republican name of all time, tried to get Frick to restart negotiations with the AA. Frick refused despite everything. Public support was still very much still on the side of the strikers. Not to mention scabs kind of fucking suck at their job and Frick knew he would need to find the skilled union workers to go back to work while still doing what he set out to do, which was killing their power and allowing him to fuck up the workers. This probably would have worked out and the AA probably would have eventually returned to work with a decent contract. But then some fucking asshole in New York ruined everything. Oh, as always. Alexander Berkman, a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant and influential member of the New York anarchist movement with absolutely no connection to the AA whatsoever, nor the strike, or even the entire state of Pennsylvania, attempted to assassinate Frick in his New York offices. He barged in, shot Frick three times, and when that didn't work, stabbed him once more. Frick didn't die. How bad of a shot do you have to be to shoot someone three times with 1880s munitions? And not like point them. blank rage. Yeah. yeah. And he stabbed him. And yeah. he stabbed him. Now, rather than supporting his actions, a group of union men who were there to for negotiation purposes barged into the office and beat Berkman half to death to turn him over to police. This completely imploded public support for the strikers and led to O'Donnell being voted out of his role. Other unions like the American Federation of Labor pulled their support from the strikers and refused to boycott Carnegie products, all but making the AA strike pointless. As a strike wore on without support, the AA became bankrupt and strikers finally gave up and voted to return to work. The AA itself would never really recover. With the union crushed, Carnegie slashed wages, imposed 12-hour workdays, eliminated 500 jobs, and took away overtime pay. Frick and Carnegie were roundly hated for their roles in the battle, but since they were titans of industry and fantastically wealthy, they had enough money that reality and consequences simply bent around them. Nothing ever came from them or hurt them. If there's one bright spot to come from all of this is that none of the workers were ever charged for the role in a 12-hour-long pitched gun battle, which at one point involved a cannon bombardment and killed multiple people. Uh, Something, anyway. Also, despite the public largely turning against the strikers, Everyone, public and government alike, turned against the Pinkertons even more. Good. 
The Battle of Homestead was just another in a long line of brutal pitched battles that this gang of assholes had found themselves in. And it wasn't even the first one. In the years after the battle, most of the states in the U.S. passed laws that were specifically target the Pinkertons, refusing to allow to hire them to act as a private army to solve labor disputes and strikes. This isn't a bright spot, though. Instead, they would just use the National Guard, who ended up being 10 times more deadly than the Pinkertons ever were. For instance, the Ludlow Massacre of Colorado in 1914. So, yeah, there's really no bright spot here. The yeah. end. <laughs> folk scabs, folk the Pinkertons, Union Strong, baby. Yep. I thought it'd be fun. We haven't talked about anything stupid like this in a while. I like what's there were some people that were like brought up on some charges in connection mm-hmm. uh, to the battle. But the, the they all were dropped. Yeah, um, they realized like we'd literally have to charge at the entire town of Homestead, and not to mention a healthy number of people that flooded in from Pittsburgh and all this other stuff. So like, let's call this one a wash, boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, call your losses while you're ahead. If violence at a long enough, large enough scale, you eventually get away with. I mean, as evidenced by this. Not so much. I mean, how many thousands of people have been prosecuted for January 6th so far? So, you know, the time for this kind of getting away with this kind of thing is unfortunately passed. Uh, I don't know if I should say unfortunately or fortunately, depending <laughs> since we know since we know who's committing the vast majority of violence in the United States these days. Um, so, Tom, we do a thing on the show called Questions from the Legion. If you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, donate to the show on Patreon. You can ask us a question on Patreon. Or you can ask us on Discord or load it into a small riverboat and kick it down the river towards Pittsburgh where none of us live and we will answer your question. Or alternatively, uh, brand it into the forehead of a Pinkerton and float them down the river and I'll get it that way. So today's question is, what is your favorite weird assassination story, successful or failed? I mean, obviously the Shinzo Abe one with, with the device. Yeah, like um, the doohickey rules. Um, I like Olaf Palm was also a very interesting one. It's like the only assassination of a head of state that nobody knows what the fuck happened. Was it, I am not familiar with that. Maybe for a future episode. Long story short, Olaf Palm, whose name I'm sure I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, was the prime minister of Sweden and was like walked outside of his house uh, one day and got gunned down. Um, and it's never been solved. Like. There's there's this weird I think I've brought it up on the show before because it's like they're, they're they have a sub a, a like a possible suspect uh, his name's like Stieg uh, Stieg uh, Eggstrom um, and he because like Olaf Palm is a very progressive head of state for instance uh, like there's a lot of conspiracy theories that like apartheid South Africa had something to do with it because mm-hmm. he. Uh, Palm was one of the people that was uh, very vocally and uh, globally anti-apartheid. Um, but like, it, if if my memory serves me correctly, the guy they believe pulled the trigger died in like, long time ago, like twenty years ago or something like mm-hmm. that. So they have no idea if he actually did it or not. Um, so everybody just kind of like, ooh, yeah. Like my like, obviously the Shinzo Abe one is like the first one that comes to mind. You know, getting getting got with the device um like honestly i don't have like one that stands out in my mind i much prefer prefer like theories around them like i 
I find the whole like Woody Harrelson's dad assassinating a judge really funny. And like, yeah, him, a lot of people don't know that his dad was literally a hitman. And like his dad be like arguably being connected to the JFK assassination. Um, Like if we're going in that vein, it's not necessarily assassinations. And maybe this isn't adhering to the spirit of the question. But like my favorite kind of unsolved thing is the broadband killers in Belgium. Like that is just. I've never even heard of that. Have you not? That sounds like something that you would... I mean, I do my best to forget that Belgium exists. Yeah. So, essentially, it was in the, like, 70s and 80s, this, like, series of, like, robberies and, like, mass shootings that happened with, like, military precision that were, like, spaced out, I think, over the space of, like, 10 or 12 years. I I, I can't remember the exact time frame. I don't but, know how, but I know Gaddafi had something to do with no, this. No, literally, no one, no one was ever caught, and like, because at the time, Belgium's uh, police force wasn't federalized, so a lot of people argue that this was like actually like Gladio-supported paramilitary action to get the Belgian police force federalized. But it's like it's it's super interesting. I wouldn't do a series on it because it's like it's too complicated, and you have to like spend 12 episodes explain, explaining Gladio, but, like, that's kind of my... It's not an assassination, but that's... Well, Gladio's like, one of those specters that people blame for a lot of shit without evidence. Um, there, Which, like, I'm not saying they didn't do a lot of fucked up shit. They did, especially in Italy. Um, but, like, it's 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 the MK Ultra of, like, uh, of, of conspiracy theory in Europe, whereas, like, in reality, MK Ultra did quite a few fucked up things, but was universally a failure when it came to all of its stated goals, so they didn't really do anything. Um, and, like, Gladio kind of was, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, like, everyone's willingness to the call something a psyop right now, but, uh, yeah, like, bro- like broadband killers, and, like, they're, like, connected to the, like, the, the Mark Dutroux affair, which was, like, this, like, pedophile ring. Yeah, and, like, the, the Belgium Jeffrey Epstein, but worse. Yeah, so it's, like, that sort of stuff is, like, really fascinating to me because it's like actual deep state stuff but uh yeah there's also one that we covered very uh, very very briefly i believe on our episode um about the battle of jettoville where the un general secretary was assassinated uh, his plane mysteriously fell out of the sky over the congo <laughs> um and it it was like the weirdest connection of special like everybody's connected to it because like he was against every, like the Soviet Union is connected to it at one point. MI6 was connected to it. The Belgians were connected to it. CIA was connected to it. And the thing is, is like, it seems like the Belgians, the French and the CIA killed him, but like literally anybody could have done it. Or like one that, <laughs> another one that I find, and this will be the last one that I find really interesting. Is it like the Skirpal affair? Where the dude the poisoning, yeah, yeah was they, they were just really interested in old churches, like, or is that the dude who was like murdered in his hotel room and then put inside of like a sports bag that was then padlocked from the outside? Oh, and, and they said it was a suicide. Yeah, no, that was a different one. Oh, uh, okay, the purple yeah. poisoning was, uh, I believe, two or three FSB agents poisoned a man and ended up poisoning. I think his family and his daughter yeah Yeah, yeah. and they were very clearly caught on cctv because they were in london or the uk in general which like every square inch is under cctv yeah yeah yeah. and uh they went back to russia and did uh an interview and said they were just there for tourism because they loved the city's churches or that 
Yeah, it's just like, come on, man. Yeah, ev- eventually we will talk about the assassination of Yevgeny Prigozhin, but uh, that that's if in a couple of years' time. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Planes just do that sometimes. <laughs> Especially planes in Russia. So. <laughs> anyway, Tom, thank you so much for joining me here on a little bit of American labor history. You can use this space to plug your show. Uh, listen to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. We've actually done an episode with uh, labor journalist Kim Kelly about the early, well, late 19th, early 20th century freak show circuit in America and like how that tied in with labor unions and labor rights and everything. So, you know, check it out. We do a lot of cool other stuff. Um, Unionize the bearded woman. That's what we want. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, listen to that. Uh, this is the only show that I do, but if you like what we do here on the Lines of My Donkeys podcast, you can donate to us on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. And, you know, if you, you get five plus years of bonus content, Discord access, access to the History of Armenia side series that I do on my own. I occasionally bring guests on whenever our current reality gets a little bit too spicy, as it seems to be once again. Um, and, you know, you get ebooks, you get audiobooks that I'm currently working on, you get stickers, uh, you get locks of Tom's hair. I'm, that's why that- I'm growing it back. <laughs> Uh, and if you like science fiction and military science fiction, you can find my books under the name Joe Kasabian anywhere it is that you buy your books, both digitally and physically. Until next time, uh, light the river on fire. Fuck the Pinkertons. <laughs>